The Lord is holy, is he not? Man, grateful to be here with you this morning. Uh, not just a regular morning, not just a regular Sunday morning, but Palm Sunday morning. I don't know if anybody grew up in any traditional church, but anybody remember Palm Sunday mornings? You take that palm and you fold it up and make a cross out of it. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You put it in the rearview mirror and let it turn brown. It's Palm Sunday. And man, for those of you who are scratching your head and saying, well, what in the world is Palm Sunday? What is so special about this palm? Well, Palm Sunday is the Sunday that we get to celebrate the reality that Jesus, sitting on the Mount of Olives, rode in on a donkey into Jerusalem, uh, where he would spend his last seven days of his earthly ministry. Um, and, and really, Palm Sunday marks the start of what's known as Passion Week or Holy Week. And this story really does climax next Sunday as we celebrate the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But this Sunday was just as important because what Jesus was doing was not, he was not flossing. He was not just trying to ride on a donkey just to be cool, but he was actually fulfilling scripture by doing so. Zechariah 9, 9 tells us, behold, your king is coming, riding on a donkey. So a prophet prophesied that years and years and years ago, and then finally Jesus steps on the scene, and then he he, he, he jumps onto this donkey and he rides in. And as he's riding in, you will see men take off their cloaks and put them on the ground. And then the scripture says that some cut off branches, Matthew 21. And so these branches that they would have cut off were palm branches and they would have laid them on the road. And as Ty said, we will be doing that once again, once we are reunited uh, forever with our king. And so we have palms here on your way out. Hospitality will have a palm leaf, not a branch, because that means a bunch of leaves, but we'll have a palm leaf for you on your way out. If you guys could grab that, there's nothing special that you guys have to do with that. If you want to make a cross out of it, that'd be cool. But whatever you decide to do, it should just be a symbol and a reminder of the work that Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. Not on his behalf, but he has done this work on your behalf. And speaking of uh, the story climaxing next week, next week is Easter. And we pray that you guys would come back to Easter service, but also that you would bring somebody with you. Bring a friend, bring a family member. Uh, get here early. We do expect a little bit uh, in terms of space. It's going to be a little bit overcrowded. So we ask that you guys would come early, but bring your family and Bring your friends uh, so that we could celebrate the resurrection of Christ. We will be singing about the resurrection of Christ, and we will take a slight detour from First Peter next week to make sure that we are addressing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, but today we are still in First Peter, so if you can grab those Bibles, those devices, whatever you have, if you could meet me in First Peter. We've been walking through a series, as you guys turn there, We've been walking through a series on the book of 1 Peter. It's actually 1 uh, Peter living as exiles. And we'll define a little bit of what that means to live as an exile through the scriptures uh, today. Uh, last week, we, what we saw with Peter um, in terms of this letter, we saw that Peter was really securing us in verses 1 to 12 in our salvation and in verses 13 to 16 last week, we saw that he was telling us the appropriate response to being saved is actually holy living. And so, you know, Peter really pounded on us last week and he defined for many of us the term holiness. We said it had baggage. And so we wanted to define through the scriptures, what does holiness mean? 
But we also uh, wanted to see this week, or Peter wants us to see this week, what the motivations for holiness is. And so last week really was a definition of holiness. This week is motivations for why you should, that's what he's answering in our text today, is why you should live holy. And and just so that we don't breed what's known as legalism or a strict, rigorous holding to the law in order to earn God's favor, it's important, if you weren't here last week, it's important for you to make sure that you go back and read or even listen to the podcast in verses for verses 1 to 12, because if you just read our text today, we will think that God is only after our behavior, uh, when in reality, he's after your salvation, and the behavior is a response to that salvation. Uh, And so if you came in this morning and you were expecting a transition in the topic, we are not transitioning in our topic in terms of holiness, because Peter does not transition in his topic on holiness. He just pounds away at our behavior and our conduct. So if you could pick me up in verse number 17, verse 17, verse 17 says this, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. You should circle that word fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without a blemish or a spot. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was manifested in the last time for the sake of you, who, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead. There's the resurrection. And gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. I I really don't, I couldn't get creative this week. I literally want to call this sermon the exact same thing I did last week, which is holiness. Uh, But we'll just add holiness part two is what we'll be talking about today. This is a continuation in thought. In fact, uh, verses 13 to 21 in the original language is actually one long run on sentence. We broke it up in the English language and put periods, but this is one sentence. And so this is what we will be talking about today. Holiness part two. Let us look before the Lord. Father, this morning, we desire to please you in our conduct. And if I'm honest, Lord, even as I think about holiness, I think about your words in John 17, 17, where you said, sanctify them through your truth for your word is your truth. The reality is, Father, we desire to walk and grow in our walk with you. Lord, we're not perfect, and I don't think that you ever saved us with the intent that we would never make mistakes. That is why there's grace. And Father, we thank you for grace, but we we do pray, oh God, for a continuing growth and a maturity in you. So Father, would you satisfy the longings of our soul today, realizing that the greatest longing that we have is to be captivated by the gospel. Maybe, maybe we be enamored by Jesus Christ. May he be the most beautiful thing in our life. It is in his name and his name alone that we come before you. Amen. Amen. Holiness part two. A California driver's license examiner told the story of a young man that, um, that he was examining as he was doing this driving test. And he almost did a perfect exam. He almost did a, I mean, he almost, he did a parallel parking perfectly. The K turn was perfect. He didn't hit the curb. He didn't hit any cones. The only mistake he made was towards the end. 
Towards the end of his driving exam, he pulled over to let the examiner out. And when he pulled over to let the examiner out, he breathed a sigh of relief and whispered under his breath, I'm sure glad that I don't have to drive like that all the time. Now, as, as comical and sad as this is all in the same uh, sentence, as comical it is, as it is, that, unfortunately, that is many churchgoers today. Many churchgoers believe that we only have to behave and, and act a certain way in front of people. But when people aren't looking, we will let down our standards. When people are not looking, we will not hold to the truth that we say that we hold to. And you know that you're growing in holy living when you're able to maintain holiness when no one else is around. I mean, in those moments where you could get away with it, the question is, do you still go ahead and move towards sin? Well, the scripture tells us today that there's always somebody watching. And that somebody that's always watching is God himself. And unfortunately, we don't think our behavior matters. We think, hey, I'm under grace. I, I will not be condemned for my sin. Yes, you won't be condemned for your sin. But the reality is God does have give us consequences for sin. On this earth, he will give us consequences, a.k.a. he will give us a spanking. And it's good for us. And so we take for, for granted the goodness and the kindness and the mercy and the grace of God. And in reality, he is good. He is kind. He is gracious and he is merciful. But here's what I know. He's also holy and his holiness will not allow your sin to go unchecked. And so what we see in our passage this morning is Peter continuing this theme of holiness. But instead of defining it for us like he did in verses 13 to 16, he's going to give us motivations for holiness. And in our text today that we just read, there are several motivations that Peter gives us so that we can conduct ourselves accordingly. And here's what I know about motivation. Motivation is a powerful tool when it comes to holy living. I, years ago, I did a, uh, a chapel service. I preached at a chapel service for the Dallas Cowboys when they played the Philadelphia Eagles. And when I did this service afterwards, we did a, we had to, we got a, to have the pregame meal with them. My son and I, we sat down with the players and, uh, you know, they were serious because they were about to hit the field. And so we were quiet, but we all were eating this pregame meal. And then after the pregame meal, the coach, the head coach took that opportunity to have a pep talk with the team. Now, I don't know if you guys know what a pep talk is, but it's designed by nature to be a motivational speech. It's designed to motivate them so that they can hit the field and execute. That is what our boy Paul is, Peter is doing in our text today. This is almost, it's almost like he, he is motivating them and giving them a pep talk in holy living. And this 2,000-year-old pep talk should produce holiness in you today. Those of you who are sitting in this room, do not disconnect yourself from this pep talk. Peter gives us several motivations in our text. And so verses 17 to 21, Peter does it really under two umbrellas. The first one he gives us is a negative threat. And then he also gives us positive incentives. And both of them are designed to produce holiness in us today. Can we walk through the text together? Verse 17, let's consider it. Verse 17 says, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself 
with fear throughout the time of your exile. Let me lift up the first part of that. And if you call on him as father, Peter already said in the preceding verses in verse 14 that they were obedient children. And now he continues this theme of us being obedient children, those who have trusted in Jesus and him being our father. And this theme just seems to continue. In fact, these believers calling upon God as father is nothing short of grace. Like, I think we take for granted that we are able to call God our father. I think we, we just say those words and we think that it didn't cost God anything. But in order for you to call God father, that means he had to sacrifice his son. And so it's sheer grace that you and I are able to say God is our father. Why? Because we're born with what's known as inherited sin. That means sin was passed down from your father all the way tracing back to Adam. And so we were born enemies of God. Then Christ comes, dies on, on your behalf, pays the sin that you were supposed to pay. And now you and I are able to utter God is our father. I think we take that for granted. We leisurely say that God is our father. But when these men and women would have read this letter, this would not have been no leisure thing. This is very huge that they are able to call him. God is our father. Is there anybody in this room that's excited about the fact that God is not your enemy? Like God is not the one that's going to pour wrath on you. If you've trusted in Jesus, he's a loving father. And that's very important for us, especially those of us who those of you who grew up without a father. Knowing that God is a you're able to call him our father. And just the fact that the scripture says that they're calling on him really is pointing to prayer. That's what calling on him is. It's prayer. And so what we learned last week is that holy living requires you to guard your mind, to be sober and alert in your thinking. We learned last week the importance of of Bible intake. Remember last week in verse 16, he ended by saying, since it is written, showing that holy living really is being in your Bibles. You cannot disconnect the scriptures from your holy living. But what we see today is Peter is introducing us to the fact that prayer is a vital part of your holy living. Most of us can't overcome sin because we just don't have a prayer life. But holiness, real holiness, requires you to be serious about prayer. And if we're really honest in this room, I mean, if we're really honest, we would confess today that we do not pray enough. Is there anybody in this room that will say, yeah, I'm killing it in my prayer life? I saw that hand go, no, that's not me. <laughs> Listen, we are not killing it in our prayer lives. I don't know if you guys know this, but I read a survey that said that Christians pray less than one hour a week. Now, that, that doesn't sound bad to you until you consider that there's 168 hours in a week. And we give God less than one. Let me tell you what the scriptures say about continual prayer. In Colossians chapter 4, verse number 2, it says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Scripture I try to live by. Don't always meet up to it. Luke 18, verse number 1 says, men are to always pray. Like, always pray. Like, consider what that means. That does not mean that you should be oblivious to the world. That doesn't mean you should stay in your room and pray 24 hours a day. It means as you were going on in your day, you never get too far from a prayer. You always hold a prayer in your pocket. Anybody ever been in a business meeting and you have to slip into a mental prayer real quick? Is there anybody? So let's, let's do it another way. 
There's another group of us in here. Is there anybody that was ever in that conversation? You were like, I'm about to cuss this person out. And then you slipped into a prayer. This is men are to always pray. You were exercising. You didn't know it. Luke 18, 1. Men are to always pray. And so holy living really is prayerful living. I'm told of a story of a widow that was extremely busy. All she, I mean, the reason she was busy is because she was raising eight kids in a three-bedroom apartment that was only 900 square feet. And I'm told that she was, that the house was chaotic and that the kids were running around and they always needed something to eat and she always had to run and she always had to do and she always had a difficult time trying to find a time and a location for prayer. Until one day she said, man, I got to get prayer in. So she would sit right in the middle of the living room and put a cloth over her head. And whenever she would do that, she would signify to her kids that mama is praying. Hear me, in the busy context of New York City, that is what we need to do. Not literally stand in the middle of a street with, with a cloth, but you mentally should slip right into a prayer. Look at what Peter says. He says they called on him as father. This is prayerful living. Now, the scripture doesn't just tell us that they're calling on him as father, but it's also showing that they're calling on him as father, but he's also their judge. Now, this is where the sermon gets rocky. This is where the text gets rocky. We, sin, we tend to like the fact that we can call on him as father, but the scripture says that he's also judge. Look back at verse number 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deed. Scripture is clear that God will judge us. Now, this is a mixed motivator. I told you he's given us motivations for holy living. This is a mixed one. The reason this is a mixed motivator is because we like the fact that we can call God our father, but we don't like the fact that he's also our judge. Many of us don't like that, but what you'll see is in, in a real father, a good father, a good father, yes, he brings love. Yes, he provides care for you. Yes, he wants the best for you. But a real father will discipline his kids. Is God not a real father? This passage this morning doesn't focus on the love of God. Yes, he's loving. The passage this morning does not focus on the grace of God. Yes, he's gracious. The passage this morning focuses on the discipline of God. And I think we do not like discipline, but really, I said that he also is loving. His discipline is actually love. Yeah. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number six is clear. The, Lord's the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. And just to keep in context where we are in our text, what believers were doing at this time was because of the intense persecution they were under, because of the Roman emperor, they were compromising and falling into sin so that they wouldn't be persecuted. They were denying Christ so that they would not be persecuted. I think we always, we think of martyrs in the text and we think that everybody was. But Peter's writing this letter saying, listen, the same one that you're calling father judges even while you're under intense persecution. Now, I don't know if that's you in this room. If you're under any type of hardship or any type of trial, that is not the season that you should coast in sin. But Peter is clear. No, even in that season, you should trust the Lord. Now, let me tell you what he's not saying here. When he's talking about the judgment of God, this is not eternal damnation. Listen to me. 
there is no eternal damnation for a believer. The believer will never suffer the wrath of God because it was already poured out on Christ. And so this isn't eternal damnation, but what this is, is God pulling out his big leather belt. And I'm, it's, I'm, it sounds comical, but God does discipline his children. Likewise, me as a trying to be a good father, there are times like I would not be a loving father if I, not, if I did not discipline my kids when they were in error. I would not be a loving father if my kids came home and they stole something. And I said, well, that's good. Let me reward you for that. No, you don't get rewarded for bad behavior and neither does God. Now, I read to you Hebrews chapter 12, verse six. But if you would allow me and indulge me for a moment to read it in context, let me read five through 11. And the reason I want to do that is because what we do with discipline is we think that God is punishing, punishing us in a way that is not good for us. But actually, the discipline of the Lord is a good thing for you. Can I read it? Like, you can argue with me and be like, nah, pastor, that's not a good thing. But you can't argue with the scriptures. Here's what the scripture says about your discipline. Here's Hebrews chapter 12, verse number six, verse number five. Let me start there. It says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when he, when reproved by him for the Lord disciplines the one that he loves and he chastens every son whom he receives. Verse seven, it is for a discipline that you have to endure. Look, listen to this. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline in which we have all participated, listen what the scripture says. If you're, if you're not disciplined by God, this is what the scripture says. Then you are an illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live for, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, talking about God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Verse 11, for the, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields peaceful fruit for righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let me just lift up a part of verse number 10 to you. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Listen to me, as we're talking about holiness today, please understand that some of you will not be motivated because of his love. Some of you will only be motivated in holy living because of his discipline. And so he turns the heat up and he pulls the belt out and he he handles us. And there's, I mean, you, I don't know how many of you got spankings. You know, I know some of you are like you had timeout ministry. I didn't grow up in that. Like I got beat with a belt. And, and I don't know how some of you grow up, grew up, but listen, your father, your mother couldn't spank you worse than God can spank you. But the scriptures are clear. I, I wanted to preach something different today. I wanted to preach something that's going to be Palm Sunday-ish. But listen, the discipline of the Lord produces holiness. So sometimes he does lovingly discipline his children for living in sin. And I promise you sin has a consequence to it. It always doesn't. Right now, you may be getting away with sin right now, but at some point, it always catches up with you. Always catches up with you. So Peter is serious. He said, listen, he's, he's God our father, but he's not just our father. He is also our 
judge, but let me not only talk about the negative aspects of God judging us. I don't know if you realize, but there is actually a positive outcome to God judging you as well. For those who are living in holiness and trying to be, live according to what the scriptures is saying, the scriptures are clear that you will be rewarded. Let me put scripture right there because you may not believe that this is not prosperity preaching. This is 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear, here it is, before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Listen to this, whether good or evil, you will be judged for evil, but you will also be judged for good. And you will be rewarded for good. Judgment is not always negative. Some of you in here may be living according to the scriptures and you will be rewarded for it according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Listen, I used to love Judge Judy. Don't, don't judge me, fellas. I used to love... I mean, I, there was one point in my life where I literally almost got in trouble at work because I left 15 minutes early to just to go home to catch that one episode of... Judge Judy. My wife knows. I think I had a slight crush on her. I don't know. I can't prove it. But there was some affection that I had for Judge Judy. Judge, man, fellas, don't, I'm serious. Don't get at me later about this one. I genuinely love Judge Judy. But you know what I love about her? She's fierce in her courtroom. She is fierce in her courtroom. And, and here's, here's the thing about Judge Judy. Judge Judy always has a plaintiff and a defendant in her courtroom. Now, every time she has a, she, she's ruling over a case, notice someone is punished and someone leaves rewarded. Every time, she never just cr like crushes both of them. It always tells us that she says judgment for the plaintiff in the amount of, that's a reward. So someone in the midst of judgment will be blessed and someone will not be blessed. It is the same with God. Some of us in this room will have to pay for our consequences. And I'm not talking about pay in hell if you've trusted Jesus. I'm saying some of you will suffer punishment on earth, but some of you will be rewarded when you get to heaven. Let me put some more scripture there. Matthew chapter five, verse 12, because y'all feel like y'all not believing me. So I got to get to the word of God. Matthew chapter five, verse 12 says this. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. It does not say that your reward is heaven. Yes, heaven is a reward, but it tells us your reward will be great in heaven. That means that, that I don't know if you've ever heard about the crown that you will receive when you get to heaven for holy living. Those who obey the word of God, you'll get to heaven and you will have a crown. But your crown isn't for you to floss. Your crown isn't for you to walk around heaven beating your chest saying, look at my crown versus your crown. Do you know what your crown is for according to Revelations 4? For you to take it off and put it at the feet of Jesus Christ. Like, if nothing else produces holy living in, in you, thinking the fact that you will stand before Christ and bring a gift to him should produce holy living. He has given you the greatest gift, which was his own life. The only thing that you can give back to him is your life and your holy living and your obedience to Christ. And when you come to heaven, you can come bringing a gift to God that should produce in us holy living. But there's another motivation that the text points out to us. Get back to first Peter. Let me pick it up in verse 17. And if you call on him, who's father 
who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Here's another motivation. Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. I ask you to circle that word fear because what Peter showed us earlier was to be fervent in prayer. Now Peter shows us that you should equally be fervent in fear. Reverence to the Lord. Listen, these Christians were under intense persecution, not just persecution, but genocidal persecution. The Roman emperor tried to wipe out all of Christians. Like if anybody should be afraid, we should be afraid of the Roman emperor. Like, I don't know if you guys know this, but what the emperor would do to Christians is he would take the hide of animals and put it on Christians and then put them in the midst of a wild pack of dogs and watch the dogs eat Christians. They would take Christians and put them on a cross. Christ isn't the only one that was crucified on a cross. Christians were crucified on a cross. He would, the Roman emperor would put them on stakes throughout Rome. And when the lights would go down and the, the, the sun would go down, the Christians that were burning in the city would provide the light for Rome. So they were under intense persecution. But notice, Peter doesn't say, fear the Roman emperor. He doesn't even say, fear the Roman regime. Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear, talking about fearing God. Listen, I don't know when, when, when you sin, I don't know if your first response is to fear the consequence of sin or if your first response is to fear the punishment of another person. But the scriptures tell us today, when we fall into sin, our priorities of our fear and reverence should be to God. This was David. Remember when David fell in with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, we get his repentance. And in Psalm 51, when he's repenting, in verse 4, he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. That doesn't even sound true. He sinned against Uriah, which was Bathsheba's husband. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against his unborn son, which ultimately died because of his sin. And he sinned against all of Israel because he was the king of Israel. But yet he doesn't mention any of them. He says against you and you alone have I sinned. And so when you fall into sin, you shouldn't fear man. You fall into sin. You should fear God. Here's what I know. I don't cheat on my wife, not because I'm afraid of her. I don't cheat on. I am afraid of her, but I am. I'm just going to put that right out there. Again, men don't judge me. I don't I don't cheat on my wife because of fear of her or fear of losing her or fear of losing my kids or even fear of losing ministry. I don't cheat on my wife because I fear God. And that should be the motivation for holy living, that you walk around as an exile fearing God. I used to say over and over again, listen, fear doesn't get you into heaven. But I had to repent when I read this earlier this week. The reality is fear does produce holy living. Like, look at the words that Peter uses here. Conduct yourselves with fear. I know you're like, Pastor, don't ask people to pursue holy living based on fear. I'm not. Peter is. He says, conduct yourself with fear. But throughout the time of your exile, this fear is a holy, godly reverence to God. And that's how we should conduct ourselves. But there's more motivation in the text. As if you're not motivated enough. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. This is the second time in this letter that Peter would have called 
these persecuted believers exiles. This is the second time. The first time was in verse number one. Remember when he was writing, he said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. This is the second time we get this word exile. And what we're seeing with exile, just by definition, the exile is anybody that has trusted in Jesus, but is still living on the earth. If you've, if you've trusted in Jesus and you've put your faith in him and you are still alive, this is not your home. I know we think it's our home, but you are an immigrant here. You're a sojourner. You're an exile. This is not your home. Let me put Bible there too. Philippians chapter three, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. And what Peter is essentially saying in our text is that you should, you should follow holy living because this is not your home. But what we do is we assimilate into the culture. We assimilate as though this is our home because what happens with holy living, holy living is some of you can't walk straight in holy living because you're, you're, you're just trying to be like the world. Peter says, don't be like the world. You know why? Because you're not from here. If someone was to come here right now, sit in the midst of our gathering that was from another country, we would be able to pick up that they're not from here. Because they, don't, they have a different culture. It's not a bad thing. They have a different culture, a different upbringing, a different worldview. They probably eat different food than us. So Peter is saying, listen, you should be the same, Christian. In the midst of living in pagan cities, you should stick out like a sore thumb. Now, that doesn't mean you should dress differently and talk differently and act differently. No, be you, but be you to the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. You should be set apart. You should be different. He says you're in exile here. I went to Jerusalem, to Israel, not just Jerusalem, but I went to Israel a few weeks ago. And when I was in Israel, I stuck out like a sore, thrum, sore thumb. I mean, Israel literally is surrounded by Muslims and Orthodox Jews. And I'm sitting in the midst of Jerusalem with skinny jeans on. <laughs> like I stuck out like a sore thumb. I didn't eat the same food that they ate. I didn't think the same way. I don't know Hebrew. I had to get a translator. And, and I don't know if you know this, but they have no concept for personal space at all. Like, in fact, it's actually disrespectful if someone bumps you to say, excuse me. They think that's disrespectful. So the whole time I'm walking down the street, I'm like, boom, boom. Nobody's saying excuse me. Everybody walking. Culturally, that's different for me. I was a fish out of water. That is how a Christian should be here on earth. We load up like this is our home. This is not your home. Philippians 3.20. So I said, you're in exile. Your citizenship is in heaven. And if you live as though your citizenship is in heaven, it will produce holy living because we do not submit to the laws here. We submit to the laws that are in heaven. Scripture says you're in exile here. You're a stranger. You're different. Not better. Hear me. You're not better. You're different. And you should behave as though... You are different. So listen, be you. But there's another motivation in the text. Verse number 18. Knowing that you were ransomed. I love this. From the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver and gold. Listen, knowing that you were ransomed, you were redeemed. And so what Peter shows us in verse 18 is another motivation for holy living is he's pointing them back to the emptiness of their sin. He's reminding them, remember, you were ransomed, ransomed from, from, from the slavery of sin. And most of us don't look at sin as being, you're being a slave to it. 
But outside of Jesus Christ, you're a slave to something. Are you a slave to Christ or are you a slave to sin? And so Peter tells us, listen, the emptiness, when you look at the fullness of Christ, you'll be able to see the emptiness of everything else, particularly the emptiness of your sin. This is the same motivation that Moses gave to the Israelites as they were wandering around the wilderness. Over and over again in Deuteronomy, they wanted to go back. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They, it was almost like they forgot that they were slaves. And this is what Peter says in Deuteronomy 16, 12. You shall remember that you were slaves in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statues. Israel forgot that they were slaves. That's how you know you're going backwards in holy living. You know you're going backwards in holy living when you start to crave slavery to sin over freedom in Christ. Like Paul says in Galatians 5, 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Like understand what, what Paul is saying in Galatians 5, 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. That means Christ set you free to be free. Why do we want to submit again to the yoke of slavery? You know why? Because it was fun. We had a good time. But that reward we're talking about, your reward will be here. Have fun. Enjoy it. But this life is so short compared to eternity with Christ. God does not want to rob you of fulfillment. He wants to fulfill your joy. And I think we think that when it comes to Christ and Christianity, like we're all sad and begrudging that. No, I'm, listen, if heaven wasn't promised, I still would trust Christ. I still would trust Christ because he is that Good. And so scriptures tell us, listen, look at the emptiness of sin. Look at what he says here. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed, you were ransomed, you were redeemed. And being redeemed really points to the fact that you were at once in, in, you were a slave to something at one point in time. But Christ has come in and Christ has redeemed you. Now, he's going to expound on this thought of redemption. And I'm going to land the plane in verses 19 to 21 because over and over again, since verse 13, he's, he's given us like practical nuggets of holy living. And now he's going to land the plane in the gospel. How do I know that? Look at verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without a blemish or a spot, he was for, he was foreknown before the foundations of the world but was made manifested in the last time for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let me lift up verse 19 again, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without a blemish. And so he was talking about holy living, but now he fixes their gaze upon the spotless lamb. Jesus Christ as the spotless lamb. He points them ultimately to the gospel. And what we, what we see here really is Peter is in verse 19 pointing them back to the Old Testament, but not just the Old Testament, which is so providential today. And I'm going to tell you why. In verse 19, he's pointing them back specifically to the Passover. You know why that's interesting? Because Passover literally starts tomorrow. See, we don't, this is why I say, man, I love going through books of the Bible because I didn't pick and choose. Well, let's read. No, this is where we are. And Peter is talking in verse 19 about a spotless lamb and he's pointing them back to the Passover. I don't know how much you guys know about the Passover in the Old Testament, but 
just to clarify and make sure that we're all on the same page when it comes to the Passover, and we learned this in our Bible study, our fourth Wednesday night prayer and Bible studies, we talked about the Passover and the Passover lamb. And the Passover, God, when he was take the last plague that he was going to give to Egypt was actually not just for the Egyptians, but for everybody in the land of Egypt. Remember what he said? He says, take a lamb, kill the lamb, take the blood from the lamb and put it on the doorpost. And so what you see in every single household in Egypt, I have to talk about the Passover because that's what Peter's talking about. In every single household in Egypt, there was either a dead lamb on the table or a dead first son. Every household. Can you imagine the, the firstborn sons in the house? Can you imagine the fear that they may have felt? Like, I, I would have been like, Dad, you sure you put that, that blood on that doorpost? Because I'm going to pay if you didn't put it on. But every firstborn son would look at the table and be able to say, I'm alive because that lamb is dead. Do you not see the gospel here? The gospel is that the lamb got what the son deserved. Okay, let me, let me put that for you. We are walking free because Jesus got what you deserve. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that Peter secures them in. The fact that this lamb that was on the table gets to help the, the firstborn son to walk free. And that's what I love about the gospel. In the gospel, the perfect one becomes a sinner so that sinners can become perfect. Like read verse 19 again. It's the gospel. Look at verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, here's perfection without a blemish or a spot. Can we all agree that we all have blemishes and we all have spots? Okay. So now that we agree with that, standing before God, we should be crushed based on our having spots and being blameless or be having blame. But what we get is freedom in Christ because Christ doesn't just die for your sin. That would have been great. But Christ goes a step further and gives you his spotlessness. Please tell me a friend that you know, any friend that you know, that would die for you. Oh, forget that. An enemy, find an enemy of yours and have him die for you and give him your perfect life. First of all, you're not going to find a perfect person. But we get that in Jesus Christ. And so what Peter is showing us, in, especially in verse 19, Peter is showing us by securing them in the gospel, he's showing us that Christ became the Passover lamb that was talked about in Exodus. The same wrath that God poured out on the land of Egypt will be poured out on every single person. But believers walk free because it was already poured out on Christ. Now, he further convinces us that he's the Passover lamb. Christ does by looking at Luke chapter 22. Now, Luke 22 is very familiar to this house. Let me tell you why it's familiar here. Because almost every single week, I read Luke 22 when we have communion. And in Luke 22, so what happens at a Passover meal? They were supposed to have it every single year. And what happens at a Passover meal was the father was supposed to stand up and explain the Passover. And when he was standing up explaining the past Passover, he would take the bread and he would say, this is the bread of our afflictions that our father ate while they were in Egypt. But Jesus doesn't say that. In verse 19, he grabs the bread and says, this is my body. Thus saying, I am the sacrificial lamb. 
The second shocking moment at this Passover meal that he had with his disciples was that Jesus, so at this Passover meal, you're supposed to have three things. You're supposed to have unleavened bread. You're supposed to have four cups of wine and you're supposed to have a lamb. In Luke chapter 22, there's a mention of wine. There's a mention of bread, but there's no mention of a lamb. And the reason there is no mention of a lamb, because the lamb was not on the table like the original Passover. The lamb was at the table. Jesus Christ. And he further is further gets affirmed in the New Testament when when John the Baptist is standing on the banks of the Jordan. He sees Jesus walking. What does he say? Behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Listen, you and I are enemies of God. But we get to be counted as spotless, as the scripture says, and blameless because Christ was the Passover lamb for you. We need no other sacrifice. And so Peter walks through what holiness is, not just this week, but since last week, 13, starting at verse 13, all the way to 21, he was walking us through what holiness is. And now he secures them. This is the greatest way to end. He ends in the gospel, which means all the motivations I said to you today, if nothing else moves you, if fear doesn't move you, if living as an exile doesn't move you, knowing that Jesus Christ took the wrath that was due to you should motivate you to live for him. And that's how Peter ends today. He ends by showing that he is the sacrificial lamb. But what I know about the gospel is this, even the most mature believer if not careful, can allow the gospel to become redundant to them. It can just be like another message. My smoke alarm, I'm going to end here. My smoke alarm at my house, every, every now and then I forget to put batteries in it. And there was this one time I went a long period of time without putting batteries in my smoke alarm. And you know, when you don't put batteries in it, it beeps. But after a while, our entire household forgot that the daggone thing was beeping. It just became another noise in the house until friends came over the house and said, why don't you change your batteries? And I was like, oh, man, that thing is still beeping. What happened was we started to ignore the sound. And my, my biggest fear as your pastor is that you would treat the gospel as I treat my smoke alarm. Just that it's another noise. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Here's what I'm convinced about. I'm convinced that some of you are going through the religious workings of life. You may get up early and pray. You may submit to coming to small groups and I come to fourth Wednesday night Bible study. I'm there every Sunday morning. I'm early. I serve. I work. I've been in church all my life. But some of you are still falling short as it relates to holy living. And if you've trusted Jesus, I want mean, I, to be clear. Listen, I'm not saying you're going to hell because Jesus Christ already took the wrath of God for you. So that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that some of you are going through unnecessary hardship because you're not lining yourself up with the word of God. Last week, this altar was full of people that were honest about their struggle. But I also know that there were more of you sitting in your seat that did not want to get up for fear of embarrassment. I can't let people know that I'm struggling. 
I got to put on my church face and act like everything is good. Listen, everything is not good. Some of us have gotten so comfortable in sin. It's become functional dysfunction for us. We have no standard of what holiness is. I'm going to pray for you today. No altar call, just you and the Lord. You know right now if you are living in a constant state of of backsliding, you know that if you're constantly living in sin, Christ comes to renew your commitment to him today. Father, I want to pray for each and every person in this room. Because reality is, Lord, we spent two weeks talking about holiness. And I pray that we wouldn't walk out of here and try to white knuckle it apart from the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you breathe on this room? Those that have unconfessed sin that's dwelling in our lives. Lord, I just pray for that person. I pray that they would begin to genuinely look at the fullness of you. Peter called us in verse 18 to remember our slavery to sin. Help us to realize how fleeting that was, how destroying and destructive that was. Many of us have destroyed friendships. We've destroyed relationships because of sin. Father, I pray that you would renew us this morning and help us to hold fast to what it is that you called us to. Verse 14, you called us to be obedient children. Pray that we would obey you. We confess, Lord, that we are good at obeying our friends. We have a hard time obeying you. And Father, I don't want to make light of this. The reality is it, it is hard. We are living in a sinful world. We still have sinful tendencies. So I don't want to gloss over this like it's easy. No, it's hard. But Father, would you come alongside of us not just you but bring people alongside of us that can get in our business bring people alongside of us that can hold us accountable for living in a way that is pleasing to you and father when we do get to heaven pray that this whole room would have a crown to present to Jesus and that we lay it at his feet because he's given us so much We thank you, Lord, for these two weeks on holiness. May we walk out and be doers of the word, not hearers only, lest we deceive ourselves. Let us walk out of here, and the first question we're asking is, how can I apply? May that be what burdens our heart today. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.